0: psychedelic drugs are definitely back on the menu all you have to do is open the pages of a newspaper these days it seems and you can read about microdosing, ayahuasca new coming psychedelic therapy that's a good thing isn't it but what was the first psychedelic we're going to find out today in this episode of the bureau of lost culture the bureau of lost culture dedicated to recollecting unearthing digging up remembering half-forgotten or lost countercultural stories. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm here with my collaborator, Paul Hartfield. He says he's not high, but he maybe For a change? No, I see. Good. And we are here with, let's call him the historian of psychoactive plants, Mike J. Hello, Mike.
1: Hello, Stephen. Pleasure to be
0: here. Mm. And Mike, uh, we are specifically talking about, because you've just published this amazing new book, the... Uh, history of mescaline right but before we dig into that and go on that sort of particular trip who are you I mean I'm not even going to try and sum you up I mean I know you're a historian of science but I mean specifically we, you know how did you get to this to writing this amazing history of mescaline
1: well, it's a really strange journey that doesn't really make any any sense with, with hindsight but I sort of I sort of became the drugs guy um, quite a long time ago back in the Back in the 90s when actually I was mostly working in film and TV and editing and stuff but I was doing bits of journalism so uh, I was writing a bit for, um, you know, things like Arena at the time and Fortien Times as I was still a perennial favourite, one of the first people to actually pay me to write anything and um, back in that day, you know, we think back to the 90s and we think, oh, drug culture was everywhere but actually nobody was really writing about it at the time very much. Uh, There was, um, you know, and um, I was also an early adopter on the internet, you know, so um, back in the sort of pre-windows, you know, C colon backslash days. So I sort of wrote a bit about uh, all the kind of, you know, Usenet drugs forums on the internet in the early days, because that was really the first time that anybody started talking about drugs and drug culture. And then once I started doing that, then people asked me to uh, write more about it and Weird to remember it now, but everybody was going, you're mad writing about drugs, the police will put your name on a list, you'll be arrested, you know. But uh, just writing about drugs? Yeah, well, yeah. back in those days it was not long, you know. I mean, it, that was only a few years after, you know, the sort of Thatcher era of kind of um, books about drugs being from America being seized in transit and uh, destroyed. You know, it still had a kind of very censored sort of underground feel to it. The reaction
0: against um, ecstasy and the repetitive beats and all that stuff going on. Yeah,
1: that's right. And there were very few people, you know, actually talking about what this was and where it had come from. So that sort of slightly became my patch. And I sort of woke up to the fact that these, you know, drugs were not actually invented by hippies in the 60s. You know, that all Mm. these things that Mm. were illicit drugs actually had like long histories of their own. You know, in most cases, they'd been perfectly legal for a long time used by all kinds of people scientists and artists and sort of um poets and writers and you know so and you know anthropologists had just dis- discovered you know so i started digging into all that history and uh that's how uh um that's how i kind of became the guy who writes about drugs i do write about lots of other things so uh it's kind of a way of you know it you know it's just uh you can say you're writing about drugs, but you're always writing really about something else, and it's just like all full of you're just cherry picking all the most exciting bits, you know, for me.
0: So it's like looking at culture but through
1: the lens of drugs. Yeah, pretty much.
0: Um you have tended to specialise. I'm thinking about the that amazing exhibition which you curated down at Q. You have tended to go for the more sort of psychoactive plant end of drugs rather than the kind of synthesized bit, haven't you?
1: Yeah, that's I mean I mean that once you go far enough back into the history, it's kind of all like that. And yeah, I curated that high society exhibition at the Welcome as well, which yeah. uh, um, was sort of uh, so trying to sort of um, open the subject up and make it more global. And then you get into like you know cat chewing in Africa and sort of mm. betel nut and you know cocoa in the Andes and all those. But so, I have also written about um, the synthetic. Style. I wrote a book about nitrous oxide. Uh, there's discovery of nitrous oxide, which was the first. Synthetic drug to be made in the laboratory. That was and, the atmosphere of heaven, was it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, the atmosphere of heaven. And uh, so, uh, one of the things about mescaline as a subject is it's got both. You know, half of it is about you know the cacti, the peyote and the San Pedro that have been around and used forever in sort of Mexico and South America. And then the other half is about you know the mescaline, the drug that was synthesized from them a right. hundred years ago. In the lab so you've got kind of both stories there which is really interesting for me
0: before we dig into specifically in some history of mescaline mm-hmm. um it is interesting isn't it so you curated uh, an exhibition at q you're working with the welcome and that all seems to signal that in some way this thing i mentioned at the beginning that psychedelic substances are back in the news back on the menu you know the it feels almost as though It's only a matter of time now before, say, psilocybin gets licensed for Mm -hmm. therapeutic use, MDMA possibly too. It does feel like we are on the sort of brink of a new psychedelic era. Why don't we um, start to dig in? I mean, we're here really to talk about your book and mescaline. And um, I suppose for anybody who doesn't really know what mescaline is, Mm -hmm. Mike, and you have described it as the first psychedelic Um, So maybe we can start with that. I mean, just set out the stall for mescaline.
1: Well, mescaline is a um, chemical compound or a drug or a sacrament or a medicine or whatever you want to call it. it. It's kind of found in nature, weirdly enough, only in cacti and only in kind of two species of cacti. The famous one is the peyote cactus, which grows in Mexico and a bit of Texas. And there's also the San Pedro cactus, which grows in the Andes. And yeah, as I mentioned about um, exactly 100 years ago, actually, in 1919, it was first synthesized in the laboratory. So it also exists as a sort of pure white powder, as a chemical. And um, it was... uh, um, Probably the most famous masculine trip still was Aldous Huxley's. In 1953, he took some mescaline, the powder, dissolved in water at his house in the Hollywood Hills and uh, um, had the most amazing experiences of, of his life. He said, you know, it was like... He'd never seen the world like that before. He said it was like, says what well, Adam must have seen on the morning of creation, you know, and he wrote The, the Doors of Perception, you know, which is the uh, his famous account of this, after which he and Humphrey Osmond, who was the psychiatrist who'd given it to him, um, batted around ideas for like a new name for these kinds of drugs. And these kinds of drugs at this point included uh masculine and another drug that had been much more recently synthesized in the laboratory called lsd and these two drugs were at that time used in psychiatry and there was a whole theory that you know their effects were similar to the symptoms of schizophrenia so maybe if schizophrenia had a chemical cause it was something like this so all the all the language that was around um mescaline and LSD connected it to sort of mental illness. And um, Aldous Huxley said, oh, that's that's wrong. You know, my experience was not like being mentally ill. My experience was like a mystical experience, like people have described in Eastern spiritual traditions through the ages. So they kicked around for a word and came up with the word psychedelic, um, which meant meaning sort of mind expanding or, you know, sort of mind manifesting. And uh, so, you know, at that point, LSD and mescaline were the only two psychedelics, things like psilocybin and DMT, you know, hadn't been synthesized yet at that point. And of those two, LSD was the one that had been recently discovered in the lab, and mescaline was the one with a long history. So mm. that, in that sense, the first psychedelic.
0: It's interesting as well that uh, Huxley was virtually blind as well, wasn't he, At yeah. that point? So um, a brave thing to do, I would say, as
1: a... Yeah, it but was sighted
0: um, person. I mean, to 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 take a new substance like that and open your open your doors to it.
1: Yeah, he was. It was, it was interesting. Yeah, he, he was. He was very um, poorly sighted, and uh, one of the other really famous philosophers to take masculine earlier back in the '30s, Jean-Paul Sartre, was also really poorly sighted. They had very different experiences, but I think um, Huxley's was interesting because not only was he kind of um, partially sighted, but he said, you know, by his own account, he said, I'm a very poor visualizer." So he'd read all this like long literature about mescaline, which is all about, oh, you close your eyes and you see this kaleidoscope of hallucinations and visions and patterns and in incredible colours. And Huxley said, I didn't get any of that. I just opened my eyes and the world was just transformed. You know, it was like it had been all freshly made and I'd never seen it this way before. Did he carry on using it then? Yeah, he, he did. And, but then, you know, like um, a lot of people at that time, this is kind of the time when mescaline becomes sort of world famous and lots of people talking about it and taking it. But actually, um, scientists by this point were already starting to switch over to uh, LSD in preference. And that's what Huxley did once he, after he tried LSD. He never went back to mescaline. And he carried on taking LSD and famously um, took it on his deathbed.
0: I've been by his wife.
1: That's right, and just, uh, just um, at the moment when um, JFK was being shot. So that's right, yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, C.S. Lewis was doing something or other. He died, I think, didn't he? On the same day. There was three yeah. things happened on the same day. That's yeah, right. C.S. Lewis died. JFK got killed, and and Aldous Huxley died. Yeah, whilst taking. I said, Paul, would you um, be tempted to? Ask Ali, your wife, to inject you with LSD on your deathbed. She'd
2: happily do that. Sure, no, I'd I'd be very up for that. I'd like to see uh, see what I missed, or see what I did, or what Mm -hmm. I did bad. Or I'm sure Mm -hmm. that will happen on my bed. It's
0: a it's a bold thing to do, though, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, for most people, I I think the sort of you imagine that the experience of dying is uh, quite intense, Mm -hmm. Um, but then to augment it with um, with acid.
2: Um, I would see it as a release and I would see it as a
1: it would be doubled if I took L S D. Well, I'm hoping
2: there to witness nice it. Thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, I mean it's um <laughs> it's fine. I think it's hard to second guess until the moment you get there. Mm. I mean my my father in law who was uh uh old beatnik and kind of just used every drug he could get his hands on you know and when he sort of finally got his sort of terminal cancer diagnosis we were like well come on Derek now's your moment you can order anything up off the dock and get the script and actually when it came to it he was like nah you know I'm good I'll just uh mm. so you know you, you might sort of project forward to the moment of your death and think oh I would want to do this but mm. you know when when it comes to it you might actually want to um have a cup of tea go in bareback as it were yeah right. <laughs> interesting image <Yes>. um, <laughs> Mike, um, but
0: why did they, uh, as it were, why why did LSD for Huxley and for the scientists become the psychedelic substance of choice then over
1: mescaline? It's mostly a question of dose. Uh, Mescaline, a gram of mescaline is about three doses. Um, Same sort of dosage as MDMA, you know, it's a big fat pill if you want to take it. a gram of LSD is just thousands of doses as you know you know it's like a tiny amounts a little bit on blotting paper so um that was it starts to be preferred I mean partly obviously then for logistical reasons you know you're going to buy a gram of LSD rather than a gram of mescaline because that will you know last you sort of through you know, all your sort of clinical trials but also for scientists it was like the theory with mescaline had always been for decades that like a bit like sort of cannabis or something, if you eat a lot of it, it just kind of floods the brain with sort of weird stimuli, and kind of, uh, you know, that's why you have these hallucinations and kind of, you know, strange sort of trippy states. Whereas LSD, you know, scientists went, aha, well, this works in such tiny doses, it's got to be stimulating some particular kind of receptor or triggering something very specific in the brain. So it became more interesting for scientists to use LSD to try and zero down on exactly what it was doing.
0: So this is the synthesized uh, mescaline, obviously. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go back even further. I mean, it was from an organic root, which mm-hmm. had been synthesized in the lab. So tell us about the differences between the synthesized version and the organic cacti version.
1: Yeah, well, the um, both the cacti, the um, peyote and the San Pedro, um, have uh, lots of different chemicals in them. Alkaloids, they're called a the type of chemical, which are often mind-altering you know so uh you know there's an alkaloid in um coffee called caffeine and there's an alkaloid in tobacco called nicotine you know and uh in the peyote in san pedro there's mescaline but there's also dozens of other alkaloids uh and various people have argued that this kind of has a sort of uh rather different um gives it different qualities from sort of synthetic mescaline um Having tried it out, I have to say, I did most of my um, uh, sort of early um, experiences with um, San Pedro cactus in in, in Peru and uh, also, you know, in other places. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of, um, it's definitely a psychedelic, but it's a slightly different, it's a different family from uh, LSD and psilocybin and stuff. You know, it's a slightly different sensation. It's much more physical. You know, um, MDMA, as we might discuss later, is a sort of analogue of it. You know, it's got this thing. It's kind of more a sort of body high as well as a mental thing. And the physical experience of it is kind of can be quite euphoric and really pleasant, but it can also be quite nauseous and sort of overwhelming, you know. So uh, and I always kind of when I took... San Pedro, I thought, um, I wonder what it would be like to take pure masculine, because then you just get like the head trip without any of this kind of body load. But then when I did take, you know, masculine sulfate, um, you know, immediately recognised. oh, okay, this, you know, these are both in, you know, the pure drug itself, so So you, um, you'd
0: have a physical reaction too, you mean? Physical, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean as you do with sort of ecstasy or something, mm-hmm. you know, you feel a kind of sort of heaviness in the body and the sort of tingling in the extremities and a sort of bit of a, a sort of heartbeat it, you know, it's large days you can be quite sort of physically steamrollered you know, and have to lie down, you know all, all that uh, uh, is all, it a all fast kind of roller coaster or is it a slow change from panic to ecstasy? It's really too? slow, it's um uh, it's much slower to cross the blood brain barrier than kind of LSD and psilocybin and things. So, uh, it's really a couple of hours before you've got the measure of, you know, how much you just took. Okay. And, uh, it also lasts longer. It lasts about 12 hours. Okay. So it's pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty much more of a, a physical ordeal, you know, I, mean, I, I um, I did it I was, um, very generously invited, um, by the Native American church in Oklahoma to participate in one of their ceremonies, and that's an all-night ceremony um, based around, you know, the peyote as its sacrament. And, uh, you know, 12 hours, you know, in a teepee, sitting cross-legged and upright and focused is, you know, is pretty intense. So a a ritual is quite part of the...
2: You would recommend that?
1: I think it's a... um, I think it's bigger than, I mean, the difference between, you know, the cactus material and the chemical, I mean, you know, there are lots of kind of psychedelic geeks who will argue about that forever, you know, but uh, to me the sort of big difference is the context in which you take it, you know, because if you take it sort of on your own or experimentally or let's see what's going to happen to me, uh, then, um, you know, you get very wrapped up in your own sensations, you know, because you get uh, everything from, you know, when you close your eyes, you start to see these amazingly sort of vivid visions you get lots of auditory hallucinations or idea it's like kind of having a you know radio being tuned kind of inside of all that picking up all kinds of snatches of things and you get kind of very wrapped up in all this whereas if you take it in a ritual it's a it's a collective experience mm-hmm. you know and uh, in fact there's kind of uh, um you know the road men in the native american church you know the sort of um uh, facilitators you know always say you know don't focus on your own sensations you know sort of be with what's happening be with the music be with the prayers be with the group so i think uh you know in a way that you know the, the context in which you take it makes more difference than whether it's a cactus or a chemical
0: right so i mean with acid you know the thing was all set and setting wasn't it so you know set up the context in which you take it you know make sure you're in a lovely environment preferably mm-hmm. with lovely people and you know maybe with somebody who's more experienced and This is a sort of setting you're talking about there, which went back for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and and it's seen as a sacrament, not a drug, and it's a communal act, not an Mm -hmm. individual act, very different than the Huxley version of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's maybe physically much more demanding, I mean, Mm -hmm. not just in terms of... The stuff that it does to you with it makes you feel nauseous and throw up. But also, I mean, sitting upright uh, is for 12 hours. I'm not sure I can manage that.
1: It's hard now, as the mm. Man, road roadman said in the ceremony. It's like, um, you know, suffering is part of the point of it. This is not supposed to be easy, you know. It's just like, And there is something about everybody going through an ordeal together that's very powerful. Mm. Interestingly, the Native American church ceremony doesn't go back hundreds of years. It was kind of, it actually only appeared uh On the reservations, you know in the eighteen eighties uh because um that was the first time that most you know American you know plains tribes had encountered peyote and it was uh uh you know to do with the Texas railroad, you know that sort of peyote you know was was only really known to the people who lived down in Mexico or kind of down on the Tex-Mex border, but it does go back a really long way in Mexico, and it goes back a really long way in in the Andes, the San Pedro as well, and in Mexico, yeah, and there seem to have been kind of two different ways it was used, and you know, this it was banned by the um, Mexican Inquisition. Uh, But there are records from Jesuit priests of, like, everybody taking it, uh, usually around a fire, usually at night, and kind of dancing and singing and getting into this kind of group mind thing, you know, and you can't help now with hindsight, like sort of thinking about kind of, um, you know, the use of sort of mescaline derivative drugs in sort of modern dance scene. You know, it's kind of very similar. Ecstasy in in,
0: in, the right.
1: So that's the earliest history
0: because it's the earliest written history That's uh, right. that you can trace the use of mescaline back to, or the Peyote, because, or the uh, San Pedro. Because obviously, pre that there was no records. So there's no in in those in those early uh, races. There's no records that they kept about the uses, or rather,
1: uh, yeah. Well, there is. I mean, there's you can follow it back. You know, with art and architecture for thousands of years. There's this amazing temple site in the Andes in Peru called Chavin, and uh, uh, which is about three thousand years old, and there's you know carvings on the temple walls of this kind of sort of shaman figure who's kind of half human but with sort of jaguar fangs holding a San Pedro cactus you know and uh, there's kind of physical finds of cacti going way back you know and peyote in Mexico going back you know at least 3-4 sort of thousand years uh, and in the Andes there's lots of pottery and ceramics with kind of um, San Pedro sort of intertwined with jaguars and things so we know it was there but it's very hard to reconstruct exactly what it meant you know what that experience was so it's only with the you know the first european encounter with it was with the um the aztecs as they called them you know in mexico and that's the first time that you get people saying well there's this cactus called the peyote and when they eat it they see visions and this is how they use it and all that
0: and why were they so keen to stamp it out
1: because um they had come from uh europe in the height of the witch craze and um you know they their interpretation of the visions that it produced was that they were um, given uh, given to them by the devil. But it was also very weird for them to work out because, uh, you know, when they saw a peyote ceremony, well, you'd have um, people sitting around, you'd have these priests with this, you know, who were handing the peyote out to everybody as a sacrament and they'd receive it with sort of downcast eyes and prayers and they'd burn kapal incense it was like frankincense it was like so how come we've just come around halfway around the world and there are these people who don't know anything about god or jesus just having a communion you know what's that about so i think um you know that was why you know their interpretation was well it's it's kind of you know the devil is sort of mocking them it's kind of a parody of the sacrament you know and uh But it was also, I think, really about um, you had to kind of give up the peyote before you could properly convert to Christianity. They could see that Mm -hmm. it was a rival, you know, that people, um, you know, regarded peyote as sacred. And in fact, this comes back, you know, the Native American church these days are much more explicit about that you know they say you know christ christ's crucifixion that's the white man's sin you know that was nothing to do with us you know we don't have to atone for that um Wise know, we, words we've always had a different you know and the peyote has always been our sacrament you know that's the way in which you know jesus has always been with us you know so you can see that there's been a sort of turf war between peyote and christianity in that part of the world ever since
0: we're gonna hear some sounds mike which are related to mescaline can you just tell us what they are
1: This is going to be some uh, music from uh, the Native American church, uh, the peyote ceremonies, and um, this is a type of music that kind of developed as the peyote ceremony did. during the late 19th century when uh, the Plains tribes were on the reservations at that point. Um, a lot of their traditional ceremonies had been banned. They weren't allowed to do singing or dancing you know, uh, on the reservation. So, you know, this, um, t- this uh, ceremony happening in a teepee at night was a kind of clandestine thing. It was like a little world in which you could create, you know, the old ways and the old times uh, and the old, the old medicine. And uh, uh, this is still a big component of Native American church ceremonies to this day. Um, People sing, uh, and there are two sacred um, instruments that are passed around, a rattle and a drum. Um, And they're passed around the circle and people sing their songs. Everybody's song is different. Uh, Often they are songs about their own lineage or their own tribe. You know, there are certain songs that people are entitled to sing about themselves. And uh, also, you know, when you've got this going inside a teepee, inside a canvas TP, or as it would have been in the old days, a buffalo hide teepee, it's just amazing the way that it echoes back. And um, particularly as the peyote takes hold, what you hear in this, you know, I heard sort of through the night, so many amazing kind of um, phrases and songs and, uh, you know, things being created around this very basic kind Kind of singing and beat and um, that's a thing with a lot of the great peyote songs is that they are kind of received or channeled you know during previous ceremonies and uh, so it's a kind of a very specific sort of musical style but it's sort of uh, it's really worked to the occasion and to the place and it also kind of generates more forms and more songs as it goes along that's a
3: I know, то хата те йо not йой то хата те йо хана йой хати йой то хата те йо хана Hey nana hey nana no
0: Sounds like the actual none of the Christians actually tried it then, because if they had tried it, they might have had a very different view on it, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's, yeah, that's amazing. That's that. Absolutely right. There's no record of them actually trying it you yeah. know it's just assumed that this is a savage practice and yeah. something that if people want to become civilized they have to stop and this is also true on the native american reservations in the 19th century the missionaries were all, always trying to stamp out peyote and you know because they thought well as long as these indians stay in their teepees kind of with their peyote worship they're never going to come to the mission schools or send their children to the church or kind of become proper americans
0: mm-hmm. reminds me of um Graham Hancock's thing about, we should insist that all our politicians should uh, drink ayahuasca three times before they take power.
1: Well, I think unfortunately um, psychedelics don't, that's kind of like saying if everybody took psychedelics then everyone would agree with me, you know, I don't think it quite works like that, I think they sort of um, psychedelics tend to kind of intensify what people feel already and you really Uh, see that in this long literature on mescaline, if people are having a great time it's an amazing cosmic time, but if people are having a bad time, you know, it's an absolute nightmare. Well,
0: that's you know. a good time, actually, to... Uh, maybe we can hear a couple of uh, people's experiences. Let's start with a good one. Um, and, Mike, take us to the world of Masculine in London and have a look, El- Ellis.
1: Yeah, this is kind of really the first... Western Encounter with Psychedelics, I've always found this really fascinating because you think, well, when was that, the 1950s? But no, actually, it's the 1890s, you know, because this is the time when um, the, uh, it was actually a sort of ethnologist from the Smithsonian Institution who was out in um, Oklahoma and was the first white man to participate in a peyote ceremony and uh, brought peyote back to the Smithsonian back to Washington DC and that was when scientists first started to experiment with it and um, a very famous um, American neurologist took it and wrote up a report about these incredible visions that he'd had and it was published in the British Medical Journal at which point um, in London um, Havelock Ellis who was, who was a doctor but he was also a kind of cultural critic and writer um, became interested in this and tracked some down, and uh, that was, um, and took it, he was staying with his friend Arthur Simons in the the temple in Fountain Court, and that was sort of the first major psychedelic that was taken in London in sort of the, in 1897, and Havelock Ellis had an amazing time with it, wrote a beautiful description of it, and um, and, then thought this would be very interesting to try on some of my friends. So he gave it to a friend who was an artist to see if he'd he'd paint the visions that he saw, and also a couple of his friends who were poets, WB Yeats and Arthur Simons, uh, they also took it, and uh, um, Arthur Simons had uh, a fantastic experience. Uh, which um, uh, Havelock Ellis then wrote up and told us about.
2: Late that evening, Simmons walked from Fountain Court down to the nearby Thames embankment. As he gazed across the south bank, he found himself absolutely fascinated by the advertisement of Bovril, which came and went in letters of light on the other side of the river. The brilliance of electricity was the ruling metaphor for Peote's scintillating visions, but it was a literal stimulus too. It seemed that nothing delighted the eye of the mescalita, so much as the new electrical sublime. They arrived together as avatars of a new world of a visual spectacle, equal parts scientific discovery and sensory delight.
0: Wonderful stuff. And, I mean, we were talking earlier about the... Uh the inclusion of bovril uh, beef extract uh, advertised across the river it seems an odd uh, combination Mike but as we were discussing vrill the, the vril of the bovril was uh, at the time or coming from this idea of some sort of spiritual vital essence right so it must have rung a few bells for Simons then
1: yeah that's right well um the idea of vril and vril power was in the was int- introduced to the culture by the novelist bull Lytton, who wrote this um novel called *The Coming Race* about uh, kind of um, going down into the Hollow Earth and meeting this race of superior beings who were—it's uh, a kind of utopian world that they live in down there where there's no sort of fighting or war because everybody's got this incredible sort of source of energy called Vril Power. And uh, this was a kind of concept that was picked up, as you said, by sort of vitalists and um, some scientists, but also by theosophists and kind of occultists. So uh, when um, you know. You know this beef extract was being named uh, for whatever reason they chose to call it bovril bovine vril like this was the essence of uh, of the essence of cow you know in, in, in a bottle
0: managed to get it into a jar yeah, yeah. <laughs> And now, I mean if, for people who, who know uh, that part of London it is of course um, where the oxo tower is another oxo another uh, beef extract yeah you? that's so, right yeah. strange that's right um that was a very uh, happy experience for, S- for Simmons and mm-hmm. obviously Havelock Ellis and you said introducing it to this culture this poetic artistic culture of London and talk to me a bit more Mike about the effects that had in terms of the work that they were producing and in fact the work the effect that masculine has had on artists
1: yeah it was um that's kind of um I think that's really interesting that's the first time that um, you know a sort of uh, artistic scene kind of started to develop around psychedelics, and they were all very much in thrall to decadence and symbolism and those kind of uh, movements of the time. And then um, you get a lot more in the 1920s after mescaline becomes available as a, um, a you know, as, as, as a chemical as a white powder. Um, psychologists started using it a lot to. Uh, Um, giving it to people and getting them to sort of describe their experiences. And they got particularly interested in the sort of visual hallucinations and uh, um, trying to get people to describe that because one of the things that psychologists realised was if you give somebody a lot of mescaline, you know, and uh, then they then tell them to close their eyes and you say what are you seeing and people will say things like well I can see all these silver hoops all sort of spinning clockwise and then there's this really bright light in the middle of all of them and now they're turning into snakes and the snakes are sticking their tongues out and these they're bouncing these balls up, you know people can talk like this for hours and hours and hours and it was like wow where <laughs> is all this stuff coming from you know what is this is this some kind of unconscious projection from the particular subject or is this just some kind of mechanical thing that the drug does in the brain and what does that tell us about how the brain works so there's this kind of you know uh, loads of sort of um, scientific experiments with mescaline and then people psychologists start to realize that um, you know what they really need is people who can interpret this so um, that's when it gets given to philosophers people like Jean Paul Sartre and Walter Benjamin, you know, to describe what they think is going on, but also particularly to artists, because the idea is that artists can uh, can draw uh, what they're seeing. Uh, so, and you've got a lot of particularly modernist avant garde artists, um, particularly. Uh, people who are interested in productions of the unconscious, you know, the sort of people who are doing automatic writing and drawing, you know, so in that kind of uh, um, avant-garde art world between the wars, there are a lot of mescaline experiments and people producing um, amazing work. And uh, um, there's one that I've kind of uh, looked at particularly because theres uh, um, it's all recorded in the archives of the sort of Maudsley psychiatric hospital here in London. Uh, There were a couple of um, psychiatrists there in the 1930s who were uh, studying hallucinations because, you know, hallucinations are a kind of thing that, you know, only happen to people normally in weird states of mind, either when they're psychotic or having a high fever or something. And, uh, you know, they're trying to work out what was going on. And they thought, well, mescaline produces hallucinations. So why don't we give Masculinism artists and you know see if they can show us what they're seeing and they chose um, surrealist artists because you know they thought well they'll be interested in the unconscious Uh, and uh, these I I did a. exhibition down at the Bethlehem Museum of the Mind earlier this year of the work that they produced, you mm. know, several artists, um, you know, uh, producing work on mescaline. And a couple of them left records of the experience they had. And one of them, uh, Julian Trevelyan, uh, wrote in his memoirs about it and said, it was an amazing experience. As soon as the mescaline took hold, he was like, he just couldn't put a line wrong. It was like he was kind of drawing in 3D in midair, you know, and everything was kind of perfect. And uh, then the other one, um, Basil Beaumont um, you know, had a sort of experience that started similarly, you know, he was taken to the Maudsley and injected with um, at 10 in the morning with some Masculine and, uh, uh, but it all played out very differently. Yeah, let's hear it from Paul Basil Beaumont's experiment
2: began identically with an injection at 10 o'clock but unfolded quite differently he felt sick, cold and shivery afflicted with twitching feet and hands and a feeling of paralysis around the injection site The trees outside the window became waving serpentine forms of octopuses and the walls of the room filled with Aztec designs that put me in mind of human sacrifice. Color formations unfurled, never reaching a climax, pure color and sound without orchestration, rest or pause, almost unendurable. Excruciating pain and fear blended with exquisite beauty of form and sound in ways that you found impossible to communicate. It was too painful and too wonderful. Time went very wrong, expanding and contracting. Doctors came in and out asking him questions. Dr. Gutmann appeared as a most diabolical goat, though Beaumont was keenly aware that he remained his only connection to sanity. At Gutmann's insistence over Beaumont's objections, they went for lunch. The walk to the canteen was interminably long. Through undulating corridors, Beaumont was seated at a table with Goodman and another experimental subject who kept asking, and is this the state actually known as a psychosis, doctor? Other doctors arrived. Beaumont recalled that, I thought they were making fun of me. Then I thought they were mental patients. Finally, I decided they had all been injected with a drug. Tea in the clubroom. Amid conversation about fascism, communism, and the Jews,
0: it didn't sound too bad at the start, but it sort of got worse and worse and worse. But I mean, who would want to be tripping and then your companion says to you, um is this what they call psychosis and then starts talking about the Holocaust? It's not, um, it's a sort of set and setting thing again, isn't it? I mean,
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, I find it, I always find these fascinating because now kind of we know, oh, that's an acid trip or whatever. We know how it goes. But when you go back to the 1930s when people had no idea what this was or how you were supposed to deal with it. And the psychiatrists just think, well, I'll just inject them with this drug and, you know, see what happens, you know. but and then take them uh, to the canteen. But yeah, that's right. And um Julian Trevelyan, the one who had a great experience, goes to the canteen, and he says he just spent hours staring at the uh, cauliflower and the spaghetti and, uh, you know, admiring their forms and thinking how wonderful they were, you know, whereas you can see the same experience um, for Basil Beaumont is just a complete nightmare. Mm. Yeah,
0: I mean, you don't want to spend too long looking at cauliflower cheese, do you, in a canteen?
1: No, that's right, and it's Mm. the, you know, I think that's the, you know, there's a lot of um, scientific experiments with masculine going back, you know, way before, you know, sort of to the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, this is definitely a thread through them, you know, that um, uh, it's very hard for science to understand, you know, a drug that has such different effects on different people because normally. A drug basically does the same thing to everybody. You know, if it lowers your blood pressure, it lowers everybody's blood pressure. Then you know, even you know, like sort of Valium or something, isn't like a stimulant for some people and a sedative for others. It is what it is. So, from the very beginning, you get these amazing experiments where you know a series of subjects get given mescaline, and some of them have an amazing experience, and some of them have a complete nightmare. Um. It's
0: probably too big a scope for this conversation, but we could just dip our toes into the water. When these experiences, uh, Mike, in terms of the imagery, you talk about seeing Mm Aztec-style imagery. Well, you know, if you've drunk ayahuasca, you're familiar with that stuff as well. What is going on? I mean, maybe you can speculate a little bit. Is there something which is cross-cultural going on? Is there something which is like other or is it a kind of there's just a subjective playing out of imageries which there's no real meaning to or explanation of it's just some wonderful thing that happens like some light show or is there something deeper you think which is you know some contact with some spirit consciousness
1: yeah it's a great question and that's a question that kind of keeps coming up you know sort of uh you know, through the history of masculine, because people interpret them in such different ways. You know, and uh, you know, we're now kind of being shown all this kind of high-tech brain imaging, and showing, oh, look, you know, it's this bit of your brain talking to that bit of your brain, or uh, or, or whatever. Um, you know, for um, and and it's interesting to look at this from the sort in of indigenous traditions as well, where it just the whole conversation just seems very crude to them and very reductive. You know, it's like. Um, it's not just like the drug in the cactus you know it's like the whole thing it's the ritual it's the event it's everybody else who's involved you know in the whole experience and um you know it's very much connected with sort of um you know telepathy and kind of um pre-cognitive powers and being able to see things at a distance you know so there are so many different um frameworks and um i think that's one of the things about that you see kind of you know when you put those traditions side to side with like our modern western ones you can see that we have to kind of invent a framework to explain what's going on you know whenever we take a psychedelic it's like oh this is a sacrament and i'm going to have a religious experience or or oh, this is a medicine and it's going to make me better or oh i'm going to take this and make some art you know we can we have all these different kind of choices and um You get this all through the science of mescaline as well, that people start off thinking, oh, this is going to open up the unconscious. I'm going to understand different personality types and, you know, your hallucinations are going to tell me about you, you know. And uh, then it's like, well, hang on, everybody has these hallucinations which are kind of, Quite similar, and they don't seem to really relate to the subject. So, where are they coming from? And is it just like a mechanical production of the brain that these things just, you know, disrupt our senses and then we kind of make um, signal out of noise and, uh, you know, create these images? But then, you know, um, And in fact quite a lot of scientists who kind of put that forward also say yeah but this doesn't really explain everything it might explain why we see these geometrical shapes but taking a psychedelic is not like looking down a kaleidoscope you know it feels really important it feels really kind of deep and profound you know you're really kind of uh, you know having this um, experience that's very deep and stays with you so you know how do we explain that so I think um, all these things are kind of going on with psychedelics, and uh, you know, the te- our tendency, sort of, you know, in our, in our sort of Western culture, is to sort of pick one model or another, you know. And uh, but it doesn't. It always seems that to me that you can't really contain the experience within just one way of looking at it. I mean, one of the things which we've, you
0: know, people we've interviewed for this program in terms of the psychedelic underground of the sixties, mm-hmm. not necessarily connected with mescaline but specifically with acid, is that you see the amazing culturally positive effect that acid had, in, just in terms of music, and in terms of graphic design, yeah. and clothing, and and a kind of general consciousness raising, out of which came all sorts of political changes like the ecology movement, feminism, all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. You know, it had in some to some extent have their roots in 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 acid right yeah. so there is something communal and uh, meaningful going on there too but i was just wondering specifically uh, just thinking about my own uh, experiences that the imagery which we would lazily and loosely describe as aztec or south american why that because i mean i've i've not even been to the, to south america i've not seen those places i'm peripherally mm-hmm. aware of them why would those visions include that kind of iconography and imagery um or is it that that kind of imagery and iconography informed that so the south american cultures in the first place the big one for mike go on yeah give it a go mike yeah <laughs> well i back. think
1: i think for us it's kind of priming i mean um uh, mescaline and particularly peyote came to everybody in the West with the knowledge that this was something that had been used by the Aztecs and so you get quite a lot of like Basil Beaumont when he's having his nightmarish experience suddenly kind of gets the idea that he's going to be sacrificed by these doctors, you know, so I think some of that is cultural priming and association uh, I think um you know, there's certainly like a lot of in Mexican art, like the Wichol art that you can look at and go, wow, that is so psychedelic. Um, but there's also a lot of art from other cultures that don't use psychedelics that look like that. And, you know, in terms of the sort of Western subcultures, you know, what's interesting is um, in the 1950s when mescal and LSD are both being used and picked up, you know, they're used a lot by mostly sort of people who are kind of cultural conservatives one way or another. You know, a lot of those um, big figures, you know, Huxley to an extent, and also Gordon Wasson who discovered magic mushrooms and, uh, um, you know, Albert Hoffman who discovered LSD. You know, they're all people who, uh, you know you know, are far from being kind of left wing radicals, you know, in fact, they're mostly people who think that, uh, you know, society is degenerate. And, you know, we need to give these drugs to the bright young people of the next generation in order to, you know, there's kind of quite a sort of right wing ideology behind a lot of that. And of course, um, you know, the CIA are very involved in the distribution of psychedelics. And then in the 60s, it develops this completely different culture so I don't think psychedelics in themselves you know produced kind of um, sort of you know left leaning ecologically conscious cultures you know because there's lots of examples you know of it being used in other cultures where well, that's not the message you know I mean it's like you know today lots of you um, uh, you know in Russia there are lots of kind of neo-nazi sort of biker gangs who are very into their psychedelics I don't think they're having the same kind of warm fuzzy tree hugging experience that uh, you know people are in you know here in, uh, in 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 you know in London or California or wherever today
0: I thought about you Paul but next time I'm in Russia I don't want to meet any Russian with biker that. gangs or not drugs. <laughs> <laughs> um, one
1: project we're not doing interesting though it is actually yeah um, but also you know within paganism you know there's as as often discussed, you know, there's quite a sort of nationalist and kind of um, alt-right strand developing, you know, and that's, I think, is probably reinforced as much. I mean, you know, psychedelics, I think, just kind of, you know, powerfully reinforce your subjective experience, whatever it is. You know so if your subjective experience and your beliefs are uh, you know that um, you know we all need to kind of come together communally and save the planet I think they're incredibly powerful in spreading that message but that's not the only message that uh, you know people are interested in.
0: So. Mescaline gets superseded largely by LSD in the culture. I mean, it's always going on. As you said, psychedelics are always dead, There's always people experimenting and using it, in, maybe including yourself, and uh, it's, it's going along. And then you talked um, before about that in some way, sort of fast forward to late 80s and 90s, yeah. that MDMA and ecstasy are a sort of analogue of, they become an analogue of mescaline, and that yeah. became very significant in the culture, didn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, when, when psychedelic culture really kicked off in the sixties, then LSD replaced masculine for exactly the same reasons as it had replaced it in science. You know, if you're an underground chemist and you're going to make, you know, 10 grams of something, you know, 10 grams of masculine would basically do you and a few of your mates, you know, 10 grams of LSD would kind of do, you know, sort of uh, tens of of thousands of people. Yeah, exactly. Or the whole of Woodstock or whatever, you know. So, of course, um, LSD becomes the thing. mescaline kind of still has this cachet it becomes kind of you know this sort of legendary substance good because of Huxley and doors of perception everybody you know knows it was it was the first psychedelic and so you get a lot of stuff that sold as mescaline and uh, you know in the late 60s and in the 70s Um, but it's probably wasn't you know I mean there were some Underground chemists who made little batches for sort of, you know, connoisseurs, you know, so it did kind of exist. But, you know, uh, lots of stuff because kind of sold as mescaline that was, you know, whatever, who knows what it was. I combed through all the, the, the drug enforcement agency had a very helpful bulletin that ran all through the sort of um, 60s and 70s of all their sort of busts and, you know, sort of chemical analysis of all their sort of street seizures and uh, there wasn't any mescaline in there. So it had become this thing that Yeah, as we were discussing earlier, Hunter S. Thompson goes, oh, and then we took some masculine. It was this kind of legendary kind of crazy thing, you know, that everybody had heard of but nobody had taken. But I think the most significant masculine trip in the 60s was the one that was was, uh, the chemist Alexander Shulgin. It was his first psychedelic experience. And um, he took it in 1960, and he said, that totally changed the course of my life. It was the most amazing thing And also because he was a chemist, he looked at it and he went, well, hang on, nobody's really tried to to synthesize other variants on this or analogues of this. So he started tinkering around and um, very famously came up with MDMA, ecstasy, but also, you know, 2CB and 2CT7 and all these other phenethylamines. They're called the same kind of group. Uh, And I think in many ways... You can see these as kind of masculine sort of tamed for the chemical generation, because instead of being this kind of sort of physical ordeal that goes on for 12 hours, it's three or four hours. You know, some people find it a bit nauseous or physically weird, but it's also got that euphoria that masculine has and it's kind of manageable and it's in a pill. So uh um, it's intre- So I think, um, yeah, for, from when so, sort of dance drugs pick up in the 80s, in a way, that's like the sort of commoditized kind of chemical sort of form of masculine. And you see how it develops a very different culture, much more physical, you know, much more about dance and movement, you know, whereas kind of um, sort of acid culture. It's pretty cerebral and, you know, pretty white and pretty male, you know. Um, then when they MDMA and these other dance drugs come along, you get a very different collective feel and a very different kind of, um, you know, much more diverse crowd of people attracted to it. But
0: interestingly, of course, it, that has a massive effect on the culture, doesn't it? Just oh, yeah, in terms of music absolutely. And, and I mean, it was that kind of enlightened a whole new generation, didn't it? Um, MDMA and ecstasy. And, of course, now is still, you know, now being on the brink of being used in therapy. And so mescaline has kind of followed this route. And even though it's still out there and doing its own thing, it's, it's effect is still uh, echoing through
1: the country. Yeah, very much. I and mean, it's interesting that, you know, no, nobody's really using mescaline in kind of this new psychedelic renaissance and all these new clinical trials and that's partly I think because it was there early it was banned very early so legally it's kind of very hard one to deal with you know compared to something like ketamine which has always been kind of you know sort of you know uh, has always had been been, a a medicine that's been kind of um, you know you have to use it off label if you want to use it as a in psychedelic therapy but it's always it's been much easier in terms of bureaucracy um, to use something like ketamine something like psilocybin is kind of one of the reasons that people went for that was because it sounds very sciencey you know you don't say magic mushrooms even though that's what it is (laughs) but it's always been quite hard to use um, things that people know are acid or ecstasy or whatever and mescaline i think is is a bit the same so it's kind of it's kind of bowed out it's kind of disappeared or you could say it's been kind of um designed out you know by these sort of new things like um mdma and these new chemicals that you know have sort of s- selected you know some of its some of its qualities in a more manageable form
0: mike we're running out of time but i thought it'd be quite nice just to hear your anecdote about your father-in-law and his um, experience
1: oh yeah that was my uncle actually yeah. yeah he was um my uncle peter um he's my uh um my, who, who was who was yeah he was the brother of my father-in-law they were both kind of um sort of uh, beatniks very early on i think they actually um uh i can never quite get it straight because you know what it's like with sort of um old old druggies but i think they actually sort of their first sort of you know they first sort of bought cannabis off um uh black gi's at the end of the war in the rising sun on Tottenham court road and um certainly then through the uh through the 50s they knew the um there were a couple of sort of uh um indian corner shops where you could get bang as it was then called under the under the counter cannabis uh so they were very hip to this and peter was uh, as soon as doors of perception came out he was uh he was like wow well, this sounds great i've got to get hold of some of this and um uh so he figured out that um sigma aldrich the chemical suppliers supplied mescaline and he went out to their uh, um to their warehouse you know sort of uh on on the edge of london and uh, he said uh i'd like he wasn't sh- quite sure how much to get so he thought i'll go i'm gonna have half kilo of mescaline sulfate please and uh there's a guy there in the you know in the sort of brown coat with all the borrows who looked at him and said well sir, it's not technically illegal but we've told um you know we've been told that we should be careful who we sell it to and uh peter said well i am a physicist uh he was he was working for kodak at the time you know and uh he was he was a physicist uh but then they went oh that's all right sir you know quite why it's okay for a physicist to have mescaline and they sold him like this big bag of mescaline and uh, uh yeah, that and uh, and so that's it. so that was uh, I imagine probably one of the f- first big batches of mescaline to start circulating in the uh, late fifties in London while it was still legal. Yeah, so that's a that was a story that I'd uh, I'd I'd known for a long time and uh, you know kept picking up echoes of.
0: So there's a nice poetic uh, resonance there in you writing this wonderful uh, book, a global history of the first psychedelic mescaline, which you know. It does feel like a kind of significant uh, benchmark work because nobody's really done it before, have they?
1: No, that's right. I mean, what's happened with... um the psychedelic renaissance as you say psychedelics coming back into the culture um there's kind of the story that everybody gets of the history is that you know that psychedelics suddenly appeared in the 1950s and then in the 1960s they got kind of demonized and shut down and now we're finally you know exploring them and researching them for the first time and this is a very different story this is about how actually decades before that you know they were studied by science and used by artists and you know so it's opening up um a whole history that is kind of has been sort of uh, forgotten a kind of whole prehistory if you like of psychedelia you know like what were all these things before the word psychedelics came along to put them in their box so do check it out uh, Mike J's Mesklin a global history
0: of the first psychedelic Paul are you tempted to um, Uh, revisit the past? (laughs) Um, I'll do it again
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mike are you still um, in the game? yeah I think you know Psychedelics just uh, enrich life enormously, uh, and I'm actually uh, quite loving your phrase.
2: You, you did uh, say about it earlier, but it's uh, artifacts of a brain tricked into producing signal from noise. I yeah. like that. That's just an analog. That is, there's no science. It's just your the noise from your mind, and you're yeah. visualising. I love that idea. I love yeah. the concept because it's no no spirituality, nothing at all. It's just about the visual. No, studios. that's right.
1: I, I mean, do. I think. Uh, you know there are lots of nice sort of frameworks that I've come across in this book, including you know some of the sort of uh, um, you know the the sort of um, the Aztecs had kind of hymns and poems about this where they talked about um, the world that you went to being like. A world—it was, it was like this world that we're in. It's not like another world. You don't mm. go to another realm, but it's like being just stepped up to a higher level of energy. You know, it's like um, the world of the sun. You know, where you know color turns into light, and uh, you know. It's so I mean, that's kind of how it feels like to me. I don't feel like I'm contacting God, but I do mm. feel like I'm seeing the world you know not in the way that we normally see it you know on a higher level in which you notice things you don't normally notice and uh you know things can but, speak to you in the way they don't normally do that's right there's nothing more boring in other people's visions
2: on drugs but yeah. by, my one that I remember was uh it was a frosty morning and there was purple the grass turned into purple lobsters mm. just just baying at me and I still remember it and I still think that's the best thing out of that whole tricky 12-hour period that was the I took that away and I've still got that and it made made me happier Still yeah me exactly you don't have to say it, what is a benefit there you was, don't
1: have to say what it means or make yeah, great claims exactly. for it but you know as yeah. um, I don't, don't think life has many more kind of interesting and fascinating things to offer I mm.
0: think also uh, I mean personally speaking there is that sense of you said there of the being reawoken in some way to the world as you might have seen it before you were seven Actually, yeah. you know in that which is you know when the literal mind kind of, you know, gets control, uh, it breaks down that barrier, doesn't it, between the imagination and reality. And there is something wonderful and therapeutic, I would say, about re-entering that uh, phase. I, my own experience of cyclists is deeply meaningful. I wouldn't necessarily call it spiritual, but I would say meaningful. And uh, there is, in a, in a world which is frazzled and, you know, we live largely on the surface of things, that seems to be a very valuable experience too engaging
1: yeah and that's in fact what you know alexander shulgin said very much what you said when he first took mescaline he said I'd, I'd forgotten that the world was like this this is exactly what it was like when i was a child you know and uh i think it's um as you say i think all kinds of things can be therapeutic they don't have to be done to you by doctors in clinics i think there are all kinds of ways that uh, you know people can uh, kind of take um, you know therapeutic value or kind of um, be sort of balanced or kind of made more whole or more happy
0: so there we have it thanks very much Mike and you can check out more of Mike's work as well as this book at Mikej.net Thanks Mike our oh, pleasure thanks Mike. Th- Thank you Paul you've been listening to the Bureau of lost Culture. Focusing on this episode on the global history of the first cycle it with Mike Jay. We'll be back next time with more half remembered, half lost, forgotten stories of the counterculture. You can check us out at bureoflostculture.com.